0: We're proud to have this episode sponsored by ShakePay, the easiest way for Canadians to buy and earn Bitcoin. I love using ShakePay because it's fast, it's easy, the app is great, and it doesn't hurt that they give away free sats, which is free Bitcoin, every day just for shaking your phone. They also have the ShakePay prepaid Visa card issued by People's Trust that earns you up to 2% cash back in Bitcoin. Not points you have to redeem, just Bitcoin added to your account automatically. Like I said, ShakePay really is the easiest way for Canadians to buy and earn Bitcoin. So join the over 1 million Canadians already on ShakePay. Sign up is fast and free. It's so easy, a boomer can do it. Plus, sign up for ShakePay with the promo code LooneyHour and you'll receive $10 after you buy your first $100 worth of Bitcoin. That's promo code LooneyHour. Thank you, ShakePay. Now back to the show. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The
1: dirty secret is that no
2: one's ever going to get paid back for having the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to go. get Keith into Bitcoin.
0: Hey, there's a bubble. welcome back to looney hour episode 61 as always joined by the three amigos we got Keith dicker of ice cap asset management and rich Diaz of acorn macro Consulting welcome back to the show gentlemen what's going on rich back uh, back in the oh. homeland
1: oh yeah uh nothing man just nothing watching too much World Cup Portugal we won six1 <laughs> I know that Canada's out I'm cheering for Portugal <laughs> Um and they sat Ronaldo, so he was not happy. But they won and they played beautifully. But other than that, just back and back to the grind. Jim, too much World Cup, not enough working, way too much beer. Otherwise, nothing. What about you, Rich, Keith? Please. The
0: Portuguese the Portuguese
2: farmer.
1: That's right, Portuguese farmer from Canada. <laughs> I just, you
2: know, obviously, we were traveling last week, and it was it was a lot of fun. And my god, we have so many nice people that attended oh, yeah. that event. <laughs> Yeah, I, I spoke with, I think, almost everyone, and I really enjoyed it. It was just thrilled to see everyone. But like everyone, as you get older, you know, when you're younger, you like to travel for work because it's it's fun. You know, you get to eat for free usually. and uh, But as you get older, when you travel, you like to get back home again. So I was excited to get home, hang out with uh, Mrs. Icecap, and, you know, be in my own house, you know, for the weekend. So here I am, I'm well-rested again.
0: You wouldn't want to be
2: excited to get back to that mansion um no it was great it was a great show it
0: was a great turnout like uh, you know we're obviously extremely humbled uh thank you so much for coming out to you know everybody that did you know packed house i, I personally thought it was better than the vancouver event uh a little little bit of a different vibe and different setup um i think it was just a way cooler venue but it's uh, a lot of people are asking where the next Roadshow is going to be for the loony hour here. So um, we're, we're open to suggestions. Top of mind. Anyways, guys, um, I'll throw this out there now as I'm thinking Calgary or Montreal, maybe, you know, spice it up a little bit. But uh, anyway, I want to go skiing.
1: Go- let's go to Calgary.
0: <laughs> Calgary's
1: nice in the summer, though. Is it? I want to go skiing. I don't care about the summer. I want to go skiing.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. Uh, if you have any suggestions, obviously drop it in the uh, the YouTube comments or send us an email or what have you. But uh,
2: yeah, we'll we'll be start planning something fairly soon. So, but no one so of my convers- my favorite person to hang out with at the Toronto event was Rich's mom. Yeah, she's way cooler. Great <laughs> she lady. Is. <laughs> she is. She didn't mention fusion Index not once during the conversation.
1: <laughs> oh, you guys are so mean. It me. was lots of fun.
2: Oh boy. Hey, <laughs> okay, yeah, see what we one- got this week. What do you got, man?
1: Uh
0: I mean the theme of the last week's you know live episode was the Bank of Canada we had the the big uh you know the big twinkie bet here uh so obviously Bank of Canada raised rates 50 basis points that was the loony hour that was the market expectations we asked we did a poll uh, at the event and we got people to raise their hands and the overwhelming consensus in the crowd was 50 basis points so uh, you know, as the old saying goes, the crowd is often right. And and the crowd was right. And and Rich went with, with the crowd, the market, 50 basis points. So uh Keith and I will uh will get into the Twinkie here.
1: Hooray, thank you, Mrs. Market. <laughs>
2: um my god, was- these things were good. So-
1: <laughs> We should really get a sponsorship from Boogie. There we go. What
2: if I told you guys, when when I was a kid, uh, my neighbor across the street, this guy, uh, Dave Chater, he drove the the delivery truck for the Vashon cakes. Do you remember the Vashon cakes growing up? cheers you guys don't remember yeah i remember them yeah i love them yeah and uh so we're always playing street hockey and stuff like that and you know mr chater would drive by when he when he finished work he always finished quite early he didn't seem like he put in a full day to us but anyway he when he would finish uh he'd have that big delivery van and he'd always throw us a box of like the uh the half moons the flakies and all that stuff so i grew up on this stuff here's another twinkie as I'm eating, maybe Rich can fill in the. Uh, Get in there, take beer. a bite. What? Oh, yeah,
0: dude, I'm not gonna lie. I thought you were gonna this show up with like a massive, like gourmet cinnamon bun. Yeah, me too. I. Do- <laughs> <laughs> After that lemon loaf appearance, um, anyways, Bank of Canada raised rates fifty basis points. Um, kind so what are we at now? We're at 4.25%. So we're up officially 400 basis points on the year. So 400 basis point tightening uh, in less than 12 months. You remember the first rate hike was officially in March of this year. So the, the rug pull is nearly complete from the Bank of Canada after telling Canadians that rates would stay at zero until the end of 2023. This is the fastest rate hiking cycle, I think, in, in recent history, Rich. I don't know if it goes back to the it what, is.
1: 80s. Yes. Is it more? Well, no. So like in, in my business, people always like to say, oh, it's the first time this has happened in 15 years or it's the highest this or the record that. Um, And so, (laughs) um, you know, in continuing with that long uh, tradition of strategists making, uh, giving out stupid stats, um, it's that 400 basis point move is the fastest rate hike I'm seeing in 27 years. So 1995. So Keith would have been I don't know 40 or something. I don't know who knows. But it's it's just incredible. It really is. The pace is is really incredible. And I think that something's often forgotten. It's not only just the pace, right? Because in 1995. Um, I'm using the three months treasury bill as a proxy and we'll share the chart. Um, 1995, interest rates are 6%. So you've got, right, roughly 6 7%. Maybe you'd got into the eighths so towards the end of the year. So if you're jumping up 400 basis points on in that, do you know what I mean? The, the, the quantum and the magnitude, the magnitude might be the same, but it's on a much higher sort of base, let's say. I'm not, maybe I'm not using the right word, but you get the idea, right? It's 400 basis points over 400. Whereas now we're doing, 400 basis points off of zero or 0.25. And that's the first thing. And the other thing to remember is the debt levels are way, way, way higher now, right? So we've talked about this before. So the first point I made was about duration. And then the second point I'm making is about, you know, service costs, which you're going to get into, Steve, the ability to service that debt, um, and then the pace. And then obviously, like, uh, yeah, so that th- those two things are a material, material difference. And then also inflation was higher. I mean, it, it's just, it's, it, you know, it's easy to just say, oh yeah, 400 basis points. We've seen this before, but it's, it's, you know, not all, they were not all created equal. And it's, it's really interesting.
2: And interesting. I mean, that, <laughs> <bad. laughs> um, yeah, no rich go ahead. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, rich is right. Um, you can't compare today's rate environment to what we've had in the past because the past has never replicated or even looked or smelled like what we have today. So we're going from zero, which is basically free money around the world to the level where we are today now at four and a quarter. And it was the speed that which went and also, um, Again, like we always like to use the, the phrase that like risk has been synchronized around the world. Back back then, you know, the Americans started raising rates and, and the Canadians, you know, they were sort of following a line back then. But the rest of the world was fine. Like that's where the risk was. Now it's happening everywhere at the same time. Uh, you know, even the Aussies, like they raised rates this week. And we'll go into like their message is similar to what the Bank of Canada, but their message was as well. By the way, in 1994, when when this happened, I, I was I was working back then, of course. And, um, so back then, you know, the, the industry told us that, you know, if an investor is conservative or they don't like risk, you know, put them in a bond fund or put them in a mortgage fund, you know, of course, because you do what you're told, right? Because these old guys, they always know what they're, what they're saying. So I listen to you, buddy. I know. But these poor investors, like they lost about 10%, like within three months, like they just got absolutely, you know, smoked with it. Um. You know, here we are now, like, you know, so many years later, we have the same story. By the way, you know, one of the top movies back during that era. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> I like to say Gone with the Wind, but it wasn't quite that. I think it was uh, like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. You guys don't know that one? I've watched that. Yeah. No, I have
0: no idea what yeah. you're talking about. What? Come oh,
1: on. Dear. It's with uh, Keanu Reeves and the other guy. Well, your was yeah, Happy yeah. Gilmore. You're That's right. a classic. That's a little later. Anyways, yeah. Okay, yeah. so
0: there we go with with the rates. What did you have there, Steve? Well, so I mean, to Rich's point earlier, right? Because like, I would love like you know, Twitter for me is just such like a fire hose of like sentiment indicators and just like what 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 people are thinking and talking about, and like the constant rebuttal is like, yeah, you know, like. This is like we're going back to like the good old days, like the normal rates, like, you know, these last couple this last decade was like this fictitious rate environment, which, yeah, I I would certainly agree that makes sense. But we have to take this into context of like where debt levels are. So to Rich's point, the last time we had this sort of pace of rate hikes, uh, a.k.a. the the mid 1990s uh, household debt. To GDP in Canada was about sixty percent. Sixty percent debt to GDP. Today you're at about one hundred and ten percent of household debt to GDP. So like they're they're not they're not even remotely in the same context. So this is where I think we. I mean, we'll get into it. um, But what I'm seeing personally, okay, feet on the ground is just like the real estate guy. I still believe that how like housing is, I think the housing is the business cycle. It's a leading indicator, in my opinion. Um, you know, it's, it's in most this country. <laughs> well, in general, there is that N, uh, the NBER paper that was said, housing is the business cycle that was written in 2007. I still think it holds true, which is, if you think about it, at least in North America, whether it's Canada, in the US, particularly in Canada, that six, you have a 69% home ownership rate It's most Canadians' largest assets, the retirement fund basically is their is their primary residence. It is what it is, right or wrong. That's what it is. And every time your house goes up in value, like, you know, people refinance their house, they got more cash to then go and spend. So and it has like the wealth effect, right? If your house goes up, you know, a million bucks, you're gonna feel wealthier and you're probably gonna go and spend some more money. So when housing starts to roll over, I just think. It's just it's an indicator, I think, moving forward of, of where spending is going to go, and and the knock on effect of that. So we can talk about it in greater depths. But like when housing volumes collapse in Canada, like they are, where like there's hardly any transactions, like you know, transaction volumes down fifty percent, in our two major metropolitan cities, there's no furniture being sold. Like who's gonna? You don't need you don't need a new couch when you don't. And there's no housing transacting, and and same thing for like home renovations and and all these other house. So, anyways, long story short is that's kind of what I'm looking at, and the conversations that I'm having right now with people is that this is really, really starting to bite. There's yes, there's an element of fixed mortgages, right? There's uh, I believe it's about two thirds of all mortgages are fixed. But then you've got sort of the one third, which is this floating rate variables, these fixed payment variables, which the Bank of Canada says now over 50% of them have been triggered. Um, I think after this most recent 50 basis point, I would imagine basically if anyone that's on a fixed payment variable, I would imagine they're
1: probably more or less all triggered at this point and paying no principal. So, But Steve, the fixed isn't fixed. Sorry to interrupt you, but isn't fixed also kind of a misnomer? Because if you're fixed for two years you know, you're not actually fixed, right? Yeah, I mean,
0: yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's like the longest duration, like anyone typically signs up is five years, right? So you're always anyone that were, what took out a mortgage in 2017 at about 2.5, 2.8% is going to be renewing today at about five and a half. Like that's a, that's a shock. So, and then you can go in and say, okay, all the privates, you can go and say all the, the B lenders, which are, one to two year terms. So long story short, there's a lot of debt that's going to be rolling over that's in for a real large payment shock. And the conversations that I'm having with normal people day to day on the ground, investors, families, et cetera, is there's, there's 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 big problems coming. Um, Vancouver, Toronto, like I said, the the house prices are really high. <laughs> there's not the incomes aren't that great. People are t- people have been ingrained to take on a lot of debt, and it made sense because if you were taking on debt over the last ten years, you were basically paid to take on debt, and um, and so you know we're seeing people with the, maybe their payments only up three hundred dollars a month, five hundred dollars a month, but you've got others that are like thousand bucks, fifteen hundred bucks, two thousand dollars, and like after tax, who's got an extra eight hundred dollars a month kicking around? And don't so forget, taxes are
1: going to go up as well. <laughs> it, I, I'm laughing it, yeah. because if you don't laugh at these things; you just cry, right, Keith? I don't know, Keith. You're mentioning something last week about the, one of your friends had the enormous increase in there.
2: Um, yeah, because it's payment. yeah. So I mean, we'll talk about the rate increase and uh, you know what we were expecting and, and stuff like that. There's so many things happened this week with with the Bank of Canada, uh, but but the first part is so um, you know what one of the one of the guys I know. He bought his house. The rate was, I think, 1.2 when he bought it, and then it was up at 5.2. And That was before last week's rate hike. The change in payment they were asking for, I think, it was 2,700 bucks, and he said, "I can't do that. I could do a thousand." So they said, "Okay, we'll, we'll take a thousand." So I imagine now, you know, today, um, today's Thursday, of course, right? So we're a few days beyond. But uh, you know, everyone who's been triggered already that's mortgage rate wise not another way they've uh you know their, their payments going to go up isn't that correct Steve like you every now yeah. f- with prime going up another 50 basis points uh it, it's going to happen all over again the um so like my take on this you know we, we had a, again we had a lot of fun like doing that live event with gauging what people were expecting for the rate hikes and everything and uh, it's important though, to understand what was, what's behind the expectations for rate hikes. So in, in the financial world, the, the financial market instrument was pricing in 25 basis points. Economist, the consensus average was was 50 basically. So when you talk about, yeah, the market was expecting 50, it it wasn't. It was the economists were expecting 50 and the market was expecting 25. So, um, you know, in financial market world, people either made a lot of money or lost a lot of money last week with with the announcement. And uh, and then you came to the ice cap, you know, prediction, which was, you know, a a little outside, you know, as as they say. (laughs) but you have to go in you know we had again a lot of fun with it but when i was explaining you know why i was anticipating maybe they'll stop the whole premise was you know i think they're at the end of this cycle and and that's effectively what they signaled with the uh the minutes or the notes that came out of the meeting there, there was no live presser afterwards by the way He's but too afraid uh, to come out <laughs> <He's> too, <laughs> uh, yeah no no they're actually scheduled events so no, uh, I'm, this, I'm
1: teasing i'm teasing
2: yeah it's n- none of that stuff happening but um you know the the language that was used um what it did it's it str- for the first time it strongly suggested what's the wording um I can read it out for you if you want. Well, no, I, I have it here. All previous meetings, the language clearly stated that rates will go higher or increase further as, as we keep going. For the for the current meeting, they said we will be considering whether to raise interest rates further. So that that was the key word, whether. And um so effectively now, you know, they're they're doing that pivot. So from their perspective, they're saying, hey, things are getting stressed right now but we we want to do another rate hike because it's probably their last kick at the can here as we go down the road. And uh, you know, we'll find out, you know, three, six months from now, you know whether it was the right call, to do another fifty basis points or not. But the other thing to think about when the uh, announcement came out, like really, if everyone's expecting twenty five basis points or zero or or fifty, and if what flashes on your screen is fifty. Every other moment in time prior to this meeting, the Canadian dollar went up one, two percent. Mm-hmm. It was just on fire. And uh, what happened at at this point? The Canadian dollar went up a little bit, and it actually closed lower for the day than where it was prior to the meeting. So again, financial markets are always looking forward. You know, they're not driving with with the rearview mirror. And uh, you know, market, markets right now are saying, okay, they're effectively done. And then when we uh, for whether, whether it's important anymore or not. But right now, markets are uh, raising. Like again, they don't raise rates by these small amounts. But maybe the highs that we'll get will be like four point three eight percent. So basically, the market is now saying all the rate hikes—they're now done. So what we have coming up between now and the next meeting, which is uh, it is in January. Um, we have two inflation reports coming out. We have a uh, an employment number coming out. We'll have another monthly GDP data print coming out. Um, sure, there's a diffusion index in there as well with, with the Ivy League, with the <laughs> Ivy, with the Ivy uh, PMI number. <laughs> But uh, we'll have some more data, and a lot of people are expecting that it, it's in Q1. We'll start to see some rollovers coming, and we'll so, also have probably more
1: provision data from the banks, which you're always we're uh, on on that, Keith. And then the other thing is the the lending data, which is lagging but also really important, and then consumer confidence, which is continues to fall. So those are the other ones. Sorry, I want to tack on to that. Sorry, Steve are we
0: gonna keith are we gonna have i'm not sure when the january meeting is on the top of my head here but are we gonna have two inflation reports from canada before the meeting for the
2: for the next meeting oh just go ahead two. two okay okay we are having two come out yeah absolutely and like and with the bank earning cycle that that's good because you, know, you always want to get data to confirm you know what's happening, or you know whether the trend is changing. Uh, the Canadian banks are not on a calendar quarter system, so um, the next it's going to be uh, when we're looking at here. Sorry, February twenty fourth. So the end of January is the end of the next quarter cycle okay. for the banks. So in in February we'll get all the banks reporting again. And and again, like the most important thing for the banks right now is, is the uh, the provisioning they're doing on their loan portfolios. What What's also interesting, what came out this week, I know it was today or yesterday, but um, OSFI. So that's the Canadian banking regulator. They actually, did you guys see this story? Did you guys? No, well, I think not, I missed it actually. I'm surprised. Rich, Rich is a nerd, but he's not that much of a nerd <laughs> to go into banking regulator stories that come out. I'm more interested um, in the US banking sector,
1: which we'll get to.
2: <laughs> I know, you know, I'm pretty cool, but I like to, go nerdy stuff sometimes too but uh they increased uh capital requirements at the banks uh Ooh. post post the bank of canada yeah whoa but what that means is now they're they're now requiring banks to set aside even more capital you know for that for that cushion money day cushion and again j- just for everyone to understand right now uh, from an official perspective canadian banks uh, they're way up the the amount of cushion they have for capital requirements the tier one it's above what is required so they're not like anywhere skirting the edges or anything like that so again we're not suggesting that there's any kind of stress right now at the banks so don't go running you know to open a bank open the bank story (laughs) um but the fact that the regulator is suggesting that hey you know we are getting a bit concerned here and i do think now with this extra 50 basis points hike. As Steve mentioned, it's going to push some people uh, off sides. Yeah, the um, so the most the most common sort of story that we're
0: seeing. I'm getting a lot of calls, DMs, is a lot of like investors. A lot of again, a lot of a lot of it's mom and pops or just normal people that bought a condo six, seven, eight years ago, four years ago, which is okay. We tend to see a lot of investors that go variable mortgages. They want the liquidity preferences. Historically, variables have always outperformed fixed rates over a five-year period. So you tend to get a lot of investors that just say, you know what? I want to be able to enter and exit the market as I see fit. So let's let's float it. And so, you know, the condo that they were renting out. It might have cash flowed, Let's say you know net net might have made a hundred bucks a month, and they're paying off their principal. And you know it's kind of a retirement asset. That's kind of you know how they how would that would view it. All of a sudden, you went from hundred dollars a month positive cash flow to now you're you know treading water. You're losing five hundred dollars a month because your variable payment is up four hundred basis points year to date. And the problem is, is that they they can't actually pass these costs on to the tenants because in most of Canada, Vancouver, Toronto, I believe Montreal, for example, are all rent controlled. And, and so, you know, you're allowed to raise your rent, whatever, 2% uh, per year. And so th- 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 they're stuck. They're saying, well, what do I do? I was making money. I wasn't prepared for this. And all of a sudden I'm losing $500 a month. So the option is really like, they don't, at this point it's, it's too late to like, pivot and, and run to a fixed mortgage and like lock in at five and a half percent, the numbers don't work. So they're kind of just like basically sucking it up and eating these, these, these larger losses. Um And some are opting to sell. And I think we're going to see more opting to sell in, in 2023, because again, if you multiply this and say, well, maybe you got two investment properties and now it's, you know, 500 bucks times two of those is a thousand bucks a month. That's going to hurt. So this is kind of the story that I think is really happening. And we're seeing this again on, on young families, um, that bought in, you know, we got a couple emails this week, right. Just, just to the loony hour, which is, Hey, you know, I bought a house last year, went with a floating variable and now we're, you know, up 800 bucks a month in our payment. We just had a newborn child. Costs are adding up. And, and so, anyways, long story short, is I just think the financial stress is really going to start to build.
1: Steve, can I ask you a question? I saw that. Um, I saw this argument on, online. I can't remember who it was. For, so, forgive me for, for forgetting that. But this guy was saying that, you know, because you have um, higher mortgage rates, you have less churn, some volumes, sales volumes can go down. People then take their listings off the market and then that reduces supply. And that sort of second order effect is to then sort of put a floor under house prices. Does that is that, does that make yeah. sense? It sounded very convincing, but it also sounded kind of BS. So I'm just trying to figure what, out. What that, was that he saying sense? again? He was saying the inventory was being. He's, yeah. He's saying because, you know, because house prices have fallen mortgage rates are so high and people basically cannot go to the market. There's the other side of that, which is people, the, um, there's the, the inventory side, right? Because people are not happy about the, the house price that they're, going to get, or, and we know that people, um, yeah, and, and they can't move to, let's say their next property, for example, you have a situation where, you know, a supply is pulled off the market. And when you reduce supply and demand rain steady, you know, prices can go up. So does that sort of make sense? Or is that, you know, or if we, if we pass the event horizon, and it, there's just too much negativity, Um, Yeah, I think, I mean, we're definitely, see. if you look at like new listings, for example, in most of these major markets, they're all
0: like, they're all like decade lows. Um, So people are actually opting not to sell um, because I think they're not really happy with market conditions. They think it's going to be, you know, this is going to be a better time to sell in three, four, five, six months from now. And, uh, you know, I can't get the price I want. So let's just, you know, even if we were on the market, let's pull it off the market. So inventory levels are actually quite low right now. And that, in my opinion, is actually providing uh, support for pricing. Okay, cool. I think prices should arguably be lower. I think they're still going to move lower because I do think we're going to get a, a, a good chunk of inventory in the spring as we normally do. Um, so that's probably maybe your next leg lower in pricing. But the one caveat is I know that's a strong argument in the U.S. Because what happens is like if you're a homeowner in the U.S. and you've got you know a 30-year fixed rate at three percent, there's no option in the U.S. to port that
2: to a new property. So if you're like, oh, I
0: want to go and like upsize and move to a new neighborhood, well, you you really want to give up your 30-year fixed at three percent to go get you know a 30-year at six and a half? So people are opting to basically, there's no inventory like in the US. So, but in Canada, right? You port your mortgage to whatever property you want to go to. So if you got, if you locked in a five-year at one and a half, you can just take it to your
1: next property. So I have another question. Isn't the real estate market like notoriously opaque in the sense that like, so when you're looking at stocks, when you bought, when you want to buy a stock, on the you know on Keith's expensive Bloomberg machine, you can see you know a thousand Apple stock. You can see a bid ask spread. You know you can buy literally millions of, of dollars worth of a particular company or whatever it is. And you know for every sort of price between a certain range, you know someone in the market will match you. And it, it's more or you can you know you can see it's more or less let's say transparent for lack of a better word. Um, but if 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 people pull their their listings, let's say. You know, you don't actually have, I mean, do you have a clear indication that prices have fallen? So for example, if house prices were being sold at a hundred, but everyone pulls their listing, you know, is the, is the the intrinsic sales price, you know, this like mythological sales price that no one can really identify, but exists, you know, sort of is really at 70, but because no one has house prices on the market, who knows? It might be at 60, it might be at 50. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah,
0: things are almost going like no bid. There's like those, yeah. Right, the no bid. I think that's the one thing where it's like, I know like a lot of like the finance guys, you know, I chat with a lot of like portfolio managers that are like my clients and stuff like that. Um, it's it's hard for them to like kind of wrap your head around it. Cause like housing is so much different where it's like, there's, there's so many inefficiencies right, in, that's in it. residential that's... housing where it's like, you can, I can literally like, so everybody tries to just like lump it into like, oh, the median sales price is down 18% or the home price index or the Terranet, which is like the lagging us indicator. Like there's literally like pockets of neighborhoods where like some guy will be in like a tough situation. And he's like, he panic sells, hits the sell button, takes a low bid and, and he'll sell for whatever 20% below market. recent peak. And then you'll get like another neighbor that just like holds firm and gets, you know, a, a much higher price than. Him. So there's no, right. like, especially in this market, there's no, it's the price discovery is so hard. So when I go into Got like another pickup
1: line, it's called uh, information asymmetry. <laughs> right.
0: There you go. So, anyways, price discovery is extremely difficult. So, when I'm going into like listings, for example, right now or whatever, even for like buyers and stuff, I'm giving people like a a wide range. I'm like, listen, you could sell between one point five to one point five seven five. Whereas, like in a normal market, that I might only give you a twenty five k gap, and now it's like right.
1: seventy five. Yeah, and, like, and, s- and for stocks, it might only be like pennies. You yeah, know? or the so the relatively it might be half a percent or a you know a quarter percent rather than. One percent or two or ten or whatever. Okay, cool. Exactly. Thanks. Anyways, Sorry, long story
0: short, a lot of inefficiencies. I think that's why I think there's still like a pretty good arbitrage in real estate in general. If like you really know what you're doing, that like things aren't priced efficiently, and, and there's sort of that uh, like you said that
2: um, I like I like to see the price discovery on on richest pickup lines. I would imagine <laughs> it's quite high. The valuation is quite high on them. They're very different than uh, the ones that. Yes, I don't here. work very well. <laughs> so just oh, to, so it's, a, it's a low price. Surprise! Uh, surprise! I want on to carry on one part me. of the conversation. I think right now, it, it, this is the the end of this first wave. So the first right. wave was rates going up. You know, a lot of people are getting stressed. And there earlier, I just just tweeted. I was just asking people and told stories about how are these rate hikes affecting people with with payments, and um, there's a lot of stories coming. People. As you mentioned, Steve, everyone's payment has gone up. Who's exposed to that kind of a mortgage? In terms of how they fund it, it's either just taking out all of their discretionary income. Some people are taking on second jobs and, and stuff like that. Draining we savings, are, investment accounts. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, Or like some people turn their basement into a, a rental unit. I mean, there's things you need. And that's what we do, right? You do things to survive. That's what we do. And, um, but so this is the end of the, if, if the bank of Canada has now stopped raising rates, which is what I suspect they have. Right. So let's everybody, I'm I'm in agreement with you. Yeah. You do not want me to eat another Twinkie on this (laughs) because it means it's going to become more expensive for everyone. Um, so that's the first wave or the first volley. The next thing that we have to hope and hope is never a great strategy for anything, um, but we, we have to hope that we do not get a hard landing coming up. Because if because right now we have this stress that's created with rates coming up. If job losses follow this on this next wave, that's when you get the forced selling. That's when you get other knock on events taking place because it's not happening yet i mean employment data is still pretty pretty good um you know you know wherever you traveled around i'm not seeing a lot of these mass layoffs that that's not happening yet i know there are anecdotal stories of course but uh if we get that that's when you're going to see the next wave of you know stress really taking place and and we're probably in q1 that's when we'll see that coming up steve i know earlier you and i were chatting a a little bit about um i I call it the pre-construction model or market what do you call it pre-sale market Pre-sale. Can we call. You, I mean, you may. Say, I mean, if you're a finance bro, you just
0: call it a futures market for for condominiums.
2: <laughs> can you can you talk a little bit about that and maybe what's what's happening? I know that's, that's a smaller percentage of 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 the of Canadians are involved with it, but it does have a, a knock-on effect coming up in in a number of ways. And uh, my other question with it is, you know, if, for anyone who is interested in maybe buying one of these properties at a distressed price. Uh, how do how do you you know how do you find these?
0: Yeah, um, that's a good question.
2: So if someone wants to profit off someone else's misery, but that's what a market. Oh my is, god, I, there's I guess, gonna be right? so many opportunities yeah. there.
0: Um, basically, yeah, the presale market, you know, right? Like people in Vancouver, Toronto, whatever. You put down that's that's where it's like most popular. I think Montreal is getting a bigger scene there. Like for example, like Calgary presale market's like not really a thing um but vancouver toronto is where it's really like the big the big news so yeah you'll you know do you go like let's say there's a high-rise condo project you know they'll usually start pre-selling them before there's like a hole in the ground they'll pre-sell them you know four years out and say okay we want to build this project typically speaking at least in bc vancouver the developers usually need to sell about 60 65 percent of the building in order to get construction financing so they go to the, the banks and say listen we just sold 65% of the building now give us our loans so we can dig the hole and build this tower so people typically put down you know usually minimum 10% up to sort of 20 25% and then you know you'll you'll close on it 4 years down the road or 3 years depending on the on the project right if it's a townhouse which are pretty quick construction timelines they might only pre-sell those 12 months out so, it all depends on when you bought it. If you bought a condo four years ago, the chances are is you're still very you're almost certainly still in the green project to project. Now, the problem is is that the people that are going to be coming up, these projects that are going to be closing and finishing construction in the next, you know three, six, eight, nine months, those buyers now have to go out to the market and get financing. And so how many of them that bought are like prepared, or we're, we're we're running their numbers on the scenario of oh I'm gonna have to pay five and a half percent on my mortgage when I go to close. Not only that, but you got to get stress tested to get approved at seven and a half percent. So there's gonna be a whole cohort, I think, of people that are going to oh shit, and and they're they're gonna have really tough times to get financing. They might have to go down to a B lender, for example, like a Home Capital or Equitable Group. That's more expensive, very costly. Uh, and then you have a cohort of people, that I would call them the ultimate speculators, where there is a cohort of people
2: that literally just bought pre-sales. I have a question for you. Yeah. When you start the pre-sale market as a buyer, how much do you put down on day one usually? It's usually
0: in like, tra- like uh, tranches or whatever. So like usually you put 5% down on signing like another 10% after you remove your conditions, you know, a week later. And then you might come up with the final five or 10%, you know, six months later.
2: So it's a scheduled. Yeah, it's it's scheduled.
0: So like a lot of like young first-time buyers usually like them too, because what they can do is they go go, Well, you know, I'm growing in my career. I don't have a 20% down payment, but I can come up with 10%. So I can put down five today and I can put down another five in three months. And then I don't have to worry about like financing and getting a mortgage for another two and a half years. And by then my income will be up and I'll have my 20% down payment and I'm good. I I have a nerdy question.
1: Oh, go. Sorry. Sorry, Keith. Go, go.
2: Yeah. uh, uh, Sorry. Uh, But the the developers then, are they usually financing this through, uh, say through the main commercial banks or are they down like at a second tier level?
0: No. Yeah. Like the big guys are always at like, you know, the RBCs, the Scotias, the TDs. Mm So the the big guys are always like tier one lenders. And then, you know, if you're smaller, mid size, you might drop down to a Canadian Western bank or or a local credit union, stuff like that.
1: Rich, my my question was just that, is there ever a time where people become indifferent from like walking away from that contract? So let's say you put 5% down, but house prices are down 25% or whatever. Isn't there like a- it's
0: a good question because like we saw that in 08 09, like you, you get sued right so the, the developer oh, you do like you get
1: sued okay. the way it's the way it's okay. written
0: is basically the developer like okay i'm gonna take your 10 percent deposit that you gave us and now that i have to resell the unit at a lower price i'm gonna sue you for the
2: difference
1: okay so okay and so it's not that not as it, clever, it's, but, it is okay. it's pretty
0: it's pretty black and white like okay,
2: it's fine. like you walk but there away, has you to be an, insane. but there has to be an arbitrage somewhere. Like if if I'm going to walk away, I can set up a corporate structure or something to come back in and buy it, and you know, I, I don't know. I on pretty, it, pretty cut and dry. Anyway, there's, there's going to be a host have... of there'll be a host of people. <laughs> Rich is thinking about that. Rich is thinking.
1: No, oh, I don't man. think anyone's. No, I'm not smart enough for that. <laughs>
2: Rich, you can, think, can make I'll hundreds of dollars. Markets, I'll think. I'll you think can make hundreds markets. of dollars
1: on that stuff.
2: Okay, <laughs> so okay, where the opportunity
0: is is basically people that bought like long enough ago where like the project is coming up for completion and like, there actually is still like a profit there. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, but they're like, Oh my gosh, like I, I don't have the ability to actually complete on this. I can't get financing. So like just, pay me my deposits back. I won't take any profit. And like, you can just, you you take the paper and close on it for me. Right. And so like the idea is like, okay, well, if you're good at it, like, you know, you would, then Keith would go and buy this distress contract. And now Keith basically closes on it and has, let's say 50K, 100K of profit. And, you know, maybe you can resell that once you actually complete. So that, that's kind of the idea. Um, so I think we'll see more of that as well. All right, can we you. switch gears? yeah, I'll switch gears. Let's get out of this nonsense. I'm sick of this bear market um
2: five years later, I'm still sick of this bear market
0: <laughs> I
2: love it the professional, um, Steve Sovesky, the professional youtuber <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, no doubt so- uh rich you you and I were uh bantering off air here. On uh, a, an article that came out from Scotia Bank, oh, yeah. I, I don't know
1: if you... I, it's better than an article. I would say it's a report written by uh, you. Go into it, but it's it's more than just an article; it's a report. Okay, I say so... that because we should give the guys their credit and because they did some good work, but go ahead, Steve.
0: Okay, so it's it's basically an article that came out, uh, not an article. It's a report that came out from Scotia Bank, and they basically said, um, you know, they were kind of. Picking apart, you know, what was causing inflation. And so there was an investigative journalist. uh, That's what he's calling himself.
1: (laughs) We use those uh, terms
0: lightly. (laughs) That basically says, oh, you know, so much for just inflation. New report from Scotiabank says 85% of our inflation is from global or foreign forces and supply challenges. Uh, Basically came out completely butchered this guy at Scotiabank's report. Um, I, I don't think he actually understood what he was reporting on. Um, You know, it's like it went viral and everyone's like, yeah, see, like it's not our government's irresponsible deficit spending or, you know, the, the central bank monetizing all this debt. And and so, you know, Rich and I, as we've talked about on stage at the live Looney Hour event was like, we feel now that we have a, a platform for Canadians is that we have a right or I think a moral obligation to speak up when we think there are are sort of fallacies out there. And and we want to obviously get out there and get the truth out and try to help people and educate them. And so, Rich, I don't know if you want to, like, you know, spit back at this report, but basically saying, excusing or recusing our government to say that, you know,
1: they were not responsible and this is just, you know, Vlad Putin's job. Yeah, so listen, I, I think there's a couple of things I really want to get off my chest. Number one, the report's actually extremely well written. And I think his name is Jean Francois Perrault. He's from Scotia Bank. I think a couple of things really bugged me. Number one, this guy did, a, in my view, I read the report. Um, you, it's easy to find online. Um, he did a freaking amazing job. He's obviously a very smart guy, understands statistics, and clearly understands economics. And what I really annoys me about what this fella did. I won't give him I won't give him any any credit because I think he not only insulted the intelligence of this gentleman who wrote the report but grossly misrepresented the overall conclusion of the report. Um and 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 that's fine I get it people have their political leanings and stuff but you know you know the, the reality is is that uh, his point was you know it, it the most of the inflation was a function of outside forces and you know you know in a, yes that's true. There was lots of outside forces that contributed to inflation. But as we've discussed here before, just some like really basic facts are worth noting. One, most of the inflation is due to shelter, which regular listeners will know. We've talked about this before. Shelter is 40% of the CPI, the core CPI basket, 389 and that has contributed nearly half or more than half of the core inflation and the core inflation right now sits at 5.3 the contribution is 2.7 i'm not good at math you guys figure that part out and so we, we can see that that and then that shelter component yes part of that is a function of um, some expensive let's say housing and heating and stuff but really it's you know due to the major subsidies that have been uh, related to um, rent relief programs and et cetera stuff. I'm not going to get into it. But the other thing that's really important is the report. And this is where I think he almost purposely misrepresented, although I'm not going to, I can't get into this guy's brain. But, you know, the report says, you know, we estimate that these programs, all the programs, so Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, the Canadian Recovery Benefit, the Canadian Wage Subsidy, the Canadian Rent Relief Program, et cetera, et cetera. He says, this guy, Jean Mr. Perot, says that it had a major impact impact on the output gap we estimate that these programs raised the output gap by 1.3 percentage points implying that the excess demand we now see in canada would not be present without these supports now number one um what's an output gap um an output gap is a, a sort of a technical nerdy term and i'll read you the wikipedia Dif- is the difference between actual gdp or actual output and the potential gdp now this is like kind of a you know you know stodgy topic that is best left for phd's in economics but the, the gist of it is if you have excess demand above what your economy's like you know let's say steady state meant to have it's inflationary right that's hopefully intuitive enough and if you have you don't have you have less um, if you have um, you don't have excess demand. If you have a negative output gap, it means you you're so below that potential number. You have a situation where you don't have enough demand, and it's usually deflationary or disinflationary. Now, that's an important point that this gentleman, I think, purposely missed or just doesn't understand. And so, so that's that's the second bit. And then the other bit is that. Um, so that that's and I just. And then the third bit was the fact that you know the 15 percent that he argues is just two programs serb and wage subsidies and then I think finally the most important part is that you know this is a statistical model right so you have to be very careful and again I, I started out by giving this gentleman who wrote this report a lot of credit because I think he did a really really good job he was not bombastic he he under, I think he, as you say, Steve, he took a very balanced and diligent approach to explaining what the different factors were, um, and and he you know he and it's and to say that there was not inflationary shocks that were from foreign sources is also wrong. We know that that's true, right? Whether it's gasoline or whatever it is, but I, I think it's just really, really kind of unbecoming of this gentleman who made that tweet to. Uh, His job is, you know, as a journalist is to be, in my view, to report the facts as they are, not as he sees them. And, you know, that, I guess, opens the, the, uh, you know, vacuum in the market, which Steve, you, me and Keith, hopefully can effectively fill and give people sort of a much more nuanced view of this. The reality is the major, incredible, huge amount of money spent um, by our government, whether you agree with it or not was inflationary and absolutely contributed in a major, major way. Um, the fact that this Mr. Perot, um, says that it was this much or not that much is, is, is my view sort of besides the point, I think that clearly the bank of Canada would disagree, right? We know cause they're raising interest rates. And if we, if they, if they, if the bank of Canada was certain that all of the inflationary impulse was from foreign sources, they wouldn't be anywhere near as aggressive in their rate hikes, right? So that's almost proof is, in, in my view, in the pudding. Um, but yeah, so that, that's my bit on, on this. I mean, we don't have to spend too, too much time on it, but I think it's worth, if you if you really feel keen on learning something about it, I would suggest you look up what the output gap is. You can look up Jean-Francois Perrault's excellent report on this. And if you disagree, I'll be happy to answer any emails on the subject. But, um, you know, it's, it's just annoying when, when journalists just try to, you know, what is it? They have an ax to grind. Is it? I don't know. Well, I just think like we need to hold our
0: policy makers, like, you know, we, we elect them. We need to hold them to account. Right. And so whether that's Tiff Macklin at the bank of Canada, who unfortunately we don't get to elect, uh, but you know, our federal government, nor or should mis- we, by the way. <laughs> right. But you know, the, the point being that, you know, we are, uh, you know, these are policymakers. We need to hold them to account. And we've obviously, you know, we've ripped Tiff Macklem, you know, a new one a few times. And no, like, I mean, there's an article here from, from Bloomberg just this week, right? I mean, um, the federal government may have overpaid, it says, as much as $32 billion in COVID benefits, um, basically as a result of post-payment verification, et cetera, et cetera, the, final, uh, the federal auditor general says. So, it is what it is. We've got money out the door, but we have to we have to be understanding that you know what did our money monetary base grow by 30 percent on a year-over-year basis at one point. So a lot of this was self-induced. It's the same thing, Rich. You've talked about it on the ESG side, you know, a lot of the the the, the spike in oil prices, for example, like this this is somewhat self-induced.
1: Well, yeah, but I mean yes, of course it's related to Russia. Obviously, if Russia didn't invade or try to liberate <laughs> oh god it's so sad um if russia didn't try to uh if russia didn't invade um you know ukraine yeah okay natural gas prices wouldn't have spiked but again let's remind everyone that natural gas prices were already five or six times what they are in the u.s before that happened right so again it, it's it's what bugs me really is that it, it's obviously most of the time it's never just one thing um i hate people who try to score cheap political points And I especially hate it when they're supposed to be investigative journalists. That's literally not their job. Uh, They're not boosters for one government or the other. And I think it drives me really crazy. So thanks for letting me rant on that.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, Keith, I'd love to get your commentary. Um, I mean, just like maybe I don't want to get you to like too political here, but like, Keith, what about like, do you have like a view? Like, how how are you shaping up your view these days on where inflation's at, right? I mean, so I think you know, these reports are obviously coming out, which we just dissected. I think government is clearly reining in spending now. Uh, we've talked about these higher interest rates decimating some of these households and removing excess spending. How are you looking at this, even from like a financial markets perspective? Like, are you in the camp that inflation is really going to, to roll over? Do we get that double top? Like, how are you looking
2: at things? There, there's a lot of moving parts right now uh just one point on you know what 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 rich was just commenting on then um several different metrics from monetary side and fiscal side shows that canada did provide more stimulus than almost everyone else out there during the pandemic so we we pushed a lot of money into the system which obviously help create you know inflation here domestically so so rich is right with with that with those comments um so our view right now with with inflation if there's no crisis coming up no and the whole russia ukraine uh war it gets resolved peacefully and it doesn't expand anywhere else then inflation is is going to come down what we suspect is that that is not going to happen we we are in our mind right now the conflict it it will increase it'll expand or whatever i think that's the path we're going it's not a hundred percent probability but i think the probability is higher than what everyone is looking as a normal cyclical market because you can't separate the two anymore they become one one has become the other this creates the opportunity for the uh for for the distribution of commodities around the world to to tighten. So whether it's on the energy space, agriculture space or any other part of of the sphere. Uh, So I I think inflation numbers will come down over the next quarter or so. And then it will have the opportunity to just start screaming higher again into the second half of of next year. So uh, again, I think we're going to see these wild swings coming up. If it is just a normal cyclical downturn, I, I think, you know, the long-term government bond is going to provide a great return coming up but then if once we switch over then to um, you know commodity inflation coming in which is supply uh supply constraints uh you're going to see the opposite happening so i, I think we're in for just this crazy 2023 coming up everyone who thinks that things were so bad in 21 they're gonna be better in 23 I, I think you might be uh either disappointed or maybe just shocked with where we're going.
0: Well how what what's the probability? What are you putting on like a <clears throat> financial event happening? I mean, I, I think we've all been chatting about it pretty much all year, right? Which is like a hey, central banks are raising rates. There's really never been a time where central banks have aggressively raised rates there's been a soft landing. Um there always seems to be some sort of financial event that happens. Seems like we got close there with with Japan and you know a few others but um i mean what, are your, what I mean, do you
2: it's, well i mean in terms of you can sign a probability to do anything and if it doesn't happen then people would deem it to be it was a it was a zero probability event but like as an example you know when when powell came out hawkish there about a week ago um what i'm hearing now is subsequently was that one of the big private equity firms you know they they had a pretty big hole in their balance sheet so they, the Fed had to sound, you know, dovish for for a few days to help them get back on side. Even here in Canada, again, if we hit a hard landing, so we do get a not this soft, shallow recession, like a half a percent down or something, if it's one, one and a half or, or two, like we're going to see a, a pretty big snowball, you know, start coming down from, you know, from bamf lake louise hitting rich in calgary at the live Looney hour event something like that <laughs> um but again i think it's a lot higher it, it's incredibly higher here's like i found it interesting we're talking about uh black earlier off offline i think and uh i don't know if we'll get into uh you know that conversation or not today but i, I saw an interesting data point on on BlackRock. So BlackRock, by the way, is one of the I think they are the largest money manager in the world because they manage a lot of ETFs and institutional money and stuff like that. Do you know who the second largest shareholder is of BlackRock? I, I don't know. Take a guess. Someone. come on. Oh, uh, uh, Bill Gates. No, <laughs> Steve. Oh, the Saudis. No, you have enough now, Rich. You're done. Uh... Let's ask the audience, everyone. There's (laughs) no one here. Yeah, I don't really have a... Because we know they're going to be right. So the second largest shareholder of BlackRock is BlackRock. Oh, okay. That was a trick question. (laughs) It's not a trick question. It might be tricky for someone (laughs) at your level. But my, my point is that there's a lot of... I don't even know how to describe it. In the financial world today, everything has been wound up. You know, we had that BIS report that came out this week. Mm-hmm. I think it was BIS, wasn't it? Yeah, the it was. The Bank of International the off, the, Yeah, the
1: off, um, the off balance sheet stuff.
2: Yeah, it's in the trillions, right? And, you know, one argument of that, you know, they all offset each other. What I owe you, we get, everyone gets in a room, we can cross it all out. But but nothing, you, people only get in a room after the event has happened, leading into an event you know, there, someone is in trouble and it turns into a liquidity event. Again, I I continue to think that central banks have ex, ex, raised interest rates to the point now where, again, we have to hope, you know, there's that word again, that now we just sort of smooth out. So by the way, like the Bank of Australia, the the Royal Bank of Australia this week, you know, they they raised rates again, but they signaled, you know, they're, they're probably done. So I think they all know that they've reached that plateau and- you know, maybe we'll just grind through this and we'll get back there. But the main thing I love about the markets today is that we've had about fifteen years of zero rates with no price discovery, and people don't realize that that's not normal. So, like some of the smartest investment guys, finance guys out there, they're giving advice to people based on a ten year period, you know that that's that's fantasy land. Now the Europeans have a lot of experience in 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 that, of course. <laughs> but not the rest of the world. That was a cheap shot. But one
1: thing you skated over was the BlackRock thing, which was, we talked about this last week, was the ESG stuff. And there's another one now. Another domino is falling, which I think it's worth sharing now, which is um, Vanguard. So Vanguard, if I'm not mistaken, is the second largest um, sort of ETF, second largest global money manager in the world. Um, I mean, they have an incredible, I don't even know how much it is, but if BlackRock's the first, Vanguard's the second And Vanguard um, has decided to withdraw from net zero asset managers pact. So there's the NZAM, my goodness, I hate acronyms, and um, which basically all these asset managers have decided, um, I think it was founded in December, 2020 or something like that. And there's like, you know, two or 300 different asset managers have all agreed to basically push this agenda. Now, again... I, I, whether you agree with the agenda or not, isn't this not necessarily the point. I think the pushback that's coming from, you know, I think there's like something like 19 attorney generals in the United States, mostly Republican, sadly, um, have been pushing a, a, and their, their point really is what what just to reiterate what we talked about last week, is that, um, you know, their job is not to push a political agenda, regardless of whether or not you agree with that agenda, their job and their fiduciary duty is to maximize their their shareholder wealth and to and be custodians of this money um, and so it's and it's fascinating that that um, sort of on the heels of you know Blackrock getting you know getting basically it's knuckles wrapped having money pulled away Vanguard sort of volunteered in quotation marks um, to sort of end, it's you know packed on net zero. Um, I think we're going to see more and more of this. Uh, besides the fact that these ESG, um, a lot of these ESG funds are not at all what they say on the tin, um, and then and on top of that, the fact that a lot of these ESG funds, in my view, directly hurt. I would say, in broadest terms, humanity. Um, I think it's really really interesting the angle that these attorney generals, these um, pension man- pension fund managers are taking with, and it's again this this Tug and pull about are these sort of um, are these giant corporations that are pushing a particular agenda? Do they have sort of the right from a, legal, a legislative perspective to do what they're doing? And I think will be as we go on into the next year into 2023. I think this is a theme that we should all just sort of keep track on and keep an eye on, and something um, that we'll definitely you know update you guys on.
2: You know, I think you know we, we always have a pendulum. You know, everything is swinging right. slowly back and forth, and and all that. And you know, I, I think the world has swung so far left over the last five years; it, it's now going to gradually go back the other way. You know, I think this reduction in commitment to ESG, I think that is is a part of it. So, um, and by the way, people you may you may not realize, but Vanguard is a uh, it's a private company. Uh, they're based in the Philadelphia area, and they, they are known in the investment world as, as being very conservative. Um, they're, they put a lot of deep thought into when they launch a product. If you look at their product suite, man, it's plain vanilla. Like They're, they're very slow to, to do other things. Uh, so for them to come out with that announcement, that that's a pretty loud shout for those guys to do it. Uh, so again, it depends who's, who's making that announcement. That's what you have to look at. You know, who's the messenger here? But that, that should catch everyone's attention that is coming from uh, the Vanguard guys. Boom. There she was. Gone.
1: What else is going on? Because there's I lots guess, of good data points that I think are worth talking about if we can run through them a little bit. You got two minutes. Wrap, wrap it up, Two buddy. minutes? Oh, damn it. I just wanted to talk about the, the contracting exports in China and um, Taiwan. Um, you know, we've talked about before on the podcast about South Korea being a really uh, good lead indicator for earnings and global activity. Well, that's true of Taiwan as well, maybe to a lesser degree, maybe to a different degree. Taiwan's more focused on semiconductors and that kind of stuff. China's obviously very, very important global economy, global exporter. Um, you know, we saw their exports fall significantly um, year on year. Um, and that that's, should, you know, just give everybody pause. Last week, we talked about Of the Chicago PMI. Um, You know, we got the ISM manufacturing, which were negative. Another sort of negative thing before I get to the positive one, which is, you know, copper. People call Dr. Copper. I don't know who coined that. It's kind of a stupid name, but Dr. Copper is meant to sort of have the pulse of the global economy. Copper exports in Chile, which is one of the largest uh, copper exporters or producers in the world, fell 27% year on year. Um, And although copper prices have sort of been kind of, creeping higher along with most of the industrial metals base um, you know this is it's 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 you know it's sort of another one of these red flags so I, again I'm, i don't like forecasting recessions but i you know i just sort of let the wind and the data sort of blow me and and you can see just like starting to line up you've got some 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 really negative uh, data points that are lining up however one of the points that absolutely flew in the face of all of that uh, was the U.S. non-manufacturing PMI, which came out and was really, really solid. And so that's just like, you know, it's really you have this tug of war right now between like relatively strong services, relatively strong labor markets, even in Europe, the fantasy land of Europe. I mean, it has re- there are some countries like France, where's employment and participation rates are ripping, going up. Um, you have strong wage growth and then, then you, and you have services sector that are actually holding out and then you have the manufacturing side. We know supply chains are, are thawing. We know that freight costs have plummeted. And then you've got, you know, so it's, it's like, I think right now we're in this really fascinating tug of war between strong impulses that are sort of going in different directions, you know, tighter liquidity, weaker export growth, slowing, um, you know, slowing manufacturing and then solid labor markets um, you know, solid services, employment, um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens next year.
0: Thanks a lot, Rich. I'm more confused than, than I was before. So (laughs) tune in next week to get the answers. (laughs) No, it's Um, important to talk about those things. It's a good place to wrap it up. Um, you know, we appreciate the support as always. All we ask that you share this episode, with at least one friend or family member, uh, give us a five-star review on Apple or Spotify.